The scripture reading for this afternoon is taken in, com- in connection with God's Word as summarized in Lord's Day 31, discussing the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the preaching of holy gospel and church discipline. And so we'll be reading together, first of all, from 1 Corinthians 5, and secondly, from 2 Corinthians 7, the verses 2 to 12. 1 Corinthians 5, and then 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 12. In the first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been expressing his deep concern about the spiritual state of the Corinthian church. And he's been talking about the divisions that have been going on between them, some wanting to follow Paul, some Apollos, and turning to factionalism. And he also refers to uh, later on the abuse of the Lord's Supper and some people showing up and becoming drunk and other people showing up late and going hungry. And we read here in 1 Corinthians 5 another point in which he expresses his his serious concern and his grief. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And such such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or adulterers, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. And we move to 2 Corinthians 7, in which we can see that the Corinthian church, the church of Corinth, has, has reacted positively to a lot of the concerns that Paul has, has brought forward. Now, they've done a lot of, of change. 
Now, at this point, he refers to also a case of discipline, and it's unclear whether or not he's referring to this case of discipline, although it, it, seems, it seems quite likely that he is. We read in 2 Corinthians 7, the verses 2 to 12, and this would have been their attitude towards uh, this case of discipline as well, as we can see from Paul's response here. Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, When we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, and inside were fears. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. And here we come to the part in which we'll focus in particular. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, You proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. So far the word of God. We'll now read together in connection with that from Lord's Day 31, which you'll be able to find on page 546 of your book of praise. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the holy gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testify to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge, both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or in life, 
are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors of wickedness, they are reported or, or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments, and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation, and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as you were reading the first passage that you were reading together with me in Corinthians this afternoon, you may have been shaking your heads. Those Corinthians, how did they get to such a point? It has to be a pretty bad state for a church to be in, to reach a point where they have those among them practicing immorality that's even worse than the culture around, isn't it? But that is the danger of every church that embraces an improper understanding of God's forgiveness and grace and the freedom that we receive in Christ, as well as an improper understanding of God's anger at unrepentant sin. You see, there are many in this world who teach, come as you are, and it's okay to stay that way. God accepts everyone the way that they are. Or, if not, God accepts everyone the way that they are, then, well, I will accept you the way that you are. But what does God teach us? In James 2, verse 18, we read, Show me your faith apart from works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Faith bears fruit. True faith brings change with it. And so we understand that as we come to Christ, it's not come as you are and stay that way. Rather, it's come as you are that you may be changed. But what happens if someone doesn't change? What happens if someone refuses to change? Is God's grace enough to cover even their open rebellion? In the Corinthian church of Paul's day at the writing of this letter, this first letter to them, it seems that there might have been those among them that would have said, yes, God's grace covers even this open rebellion and sin. We have a new freedom in the grace that God gives us through Christ. And whatever we do, no matter what it is, it's covered by the blood of Christ. But the Apostle Paul says, no, there isn't room for open, shameless rebellion against God in the church. We see his shock and his disappointment in the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5 or 6. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven or yeast or anything that causes bread to rise was seen as a picture for, of sin. Because if you put it in the bread, it works its way through the whole lump of dough and then the whole loaf will rise. 
Now, at the time of the Passover festival, Jews were commanded to clean out all of the leaven in the house and make unleavened bread for the Passover meal itself as a symbol of having been cleaned by God of sin. And actually, for the children, even today in some Jewish households, you'll find that they make a game of it. There is a little piece of leavened bread, and they'll, they'll hide pieces of it around the house. And then they'll go find it so that they can throw it out. But deliberate sin was leaving the leaven in the dough, Paul says. Rebellious sin will infect the whole congregation. Do away with it. This is why he calls Jesus Christ our Passover, because he's bringing this picture to mind, that this leaven, with Jesus Christ being our Passover, this leaven needs to be cleaned out of the house. Do away with it. Verses 4 to 5 we read, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, deliver such a person to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. Such a person who remains in open rebellion and open sin against God must also be removed from the congregation, he says. Destruction of the flesh, by the way, is not a metaphor for punishing yourself to be right with God. This is the way some people have taken it. But it's not about talking about punishing yourself in order to gain points before God. It's talking about leaving them to the consequences of their sin. To say that you'll hand someone over to the destruction of flesh means that when all else fails and they've rejected all attempts to call them back to faithfulness, to hand someone over to the consequences of their sin, that they may experience the consequences of life as they want it and perhaps by the grace of God might turn back in repentance. Here we see the Apostle Paul in this letter commanding the people in his church to use the keys of the kingdom with the end goal being the repentance of that person and their salvation. And there are two ways in which this happens in the church of Christ. First, through the right preaching of the gospel, giving them a clear understanding of what the gospel actually means. And secondly, through a call to discipline the members who rebel against God. So today we'll look at this under the following theme and points, the keys of the kingdom. We'll see first of all preaching on the authority of Christ and second disciplining on the authority of Christ. Now in our passage today in 1 Corinthians, we have read about the exercise, the call of the Apostle Paul for the Corinthian church to exercise church discipline in the form of excommunication here in the Corinthian church. But church discipline doesn't begin there. Rather, it begins with each of us holding each other accountable to the Word of God. But where do we see this from? Where do we get this from? Well, in Matthew 16, verse 18, we read about Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the prophesied anointed one and the Son of God. Jesus says to him, I tell you, you are Peter. Peter meaning a little rock or a stone, which is a name that is given to him in light of his confession, a name that he later refers 
to other Christians as. He says, you are Peter, a stone. And on this petros, this bedrock, this rock, I will build my church. Some have argued from this passage that Peter is the one on which Christ is going to build his church. But if you've ever seen a piece of bedrock stuck in the ground, you landscapers will know the difference between a piece of bedrock that's stuck into the ground and a stone, however big, that's resting on top of it. Peter is not that bedrock. The gospel, the confession of Jesus as the Christ, the one who came to save his people, is that bedrock. But Peter has the privilege of being the first of the stones that now make up that temple, that church, that community of believers who put their faith in Jesus Christ being built on that foundation. And it's to that community that Christ says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And as our catechism points out, there are two places in particular in which this binding and loosing takes place. The preaching and church discipline. Now, the preaching of the word might seem to you like a strange place to start when we're talking about opening and closing the kingdom of heaven. You're just preaching what's a fact, what Christ has already said. Repent and believe and you'll be saved. Do not repent and condemnation will rest on you. How is that, the church being given authority? You're not closing or opening anything. Well, consider the picture of a guard at the entrance to a palace. He is the one who tells people whether or not they have the right to come in. Is he the one who decides? No. And to be clear, that is what we know and confess to be true when it comes to the church as well. There is only one way to come to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. It's not on his own authority that the guard blocks entry. He blocks entry on the authority of the one who commanded him to his post, holding to the words of the person who assigned him that. That person has told him who is or who isn't allowed to visit the king. But just because the king himself puts a protocol into place in how you can come to him, doesn't mean that the guard isn't the one to open and close the door of entry into the palace. The guard is definitely closing the door. Now, it might be by the command of the king, but try getting past the guard without permission from the king. If you don't have the king's invitation, the guard has the right to close the door and to refuse entry. He has the right to tell you that you are not allowed to enter in. And that's what the preaching of the word is. It's a declaration of God's extended grace. It's a declaration of the gospel, specifically God's extended grace through Jesus Christ. God's grace to all who repent and believe in Him as the Messiah and as the Savior who came to save them from all their sins. But here, the church also has the authority, and you can see this coming out in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together, in verse 4, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. 
has the power that comes with a declaration coming from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a declaration that if you don't repent and believe, you, the church has the right to tell you if you don't repent and believe, you don't have the right to come to the, kingdom of he- to the king of heaven. The guard has the authority to stop you, not on the basis of his own authority, but on the basis of what we call derived authority that he has from the king. Derived authority. That's the authority that you get from someone else. It's not authority that you have on the basis of your own position. Now, as a side note, the fact that it is derived authority means that it also may not be abused. If a guard holds someone outside wrongly, then he doesn't have the right to do that. And the person still has a right to come in before the king. In the same way, in this Corinthian church, if the Corinthian church was to hold someone out wrongly, to excommunicate somebody wrongly, then that person would still have the right to come before the king. And the Apostle Paul touches down on that when he says, God is the one who judges those who are outside. He is speaking in part about the judgment that comes on them, but also he is referring to this. Now that person still has a right to come before the king, but it's the guard that will be held accountable for abusing his position. And for the church, that is also true. We read in Hebrews 13, verse 17, that those in authority, they will have to give an account for all that they've done. And in James 3, verse 1, we read about how those who will teach will be judged, those who teach will be judged more strictly. People who are in authority within the church, they are held accountable for the faithful use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. It seems, though, that the Corinthian church had difficulty with understanding all of this. They did not understand that it was the job of the church to call people to repent and to believe. To tell people if that they did not leave their life of sin, then they, were, they would be refused entry into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven was closed to them if they continued in sin. They didn't seem to understand that the command of, the, that the command of Paul meant that the Pardon me, they didn't seem to understand that the church had derived authority from Christ. But more than that, that the church had the responsibility to proclaim the kingdom of heaven. They didn't understand that they were failing in their duty. They were told to proclaim to that person who was contentedly living in rebellious sin that they didn't have an invitation to come into the king if they continued in their sin. In fact, they would be in danger of the fires of hell. And so this brings us to our second point, disciplining on the authority of Christ. So, the guard is at the door and he passes on the message of the king. He speaks to the person who is trying to gain entry. And he tells them that if you do not come before the king in the way that the king says, you'll not be allowed entry. What happens if the person refuses to listen to the king? What happens if the person refuses to listen 
in the case of the church? What if they question the authority of the guard to be holding the keys to be allowed entrance into the presence of the king? What if they question the authority of the church with regards to the keys of the kingdom of heaven as well? And they, dis- and they want to go their own way. They say, no, there is no need for me to repent. This is essentially what happens when the gospel is preached and ignored. The preaching of the gospel is a call to repentance, and it's a call to true faith in Jesus Christ. A true, fi- true faith bears fruit. And Jesus said to his disciples, you will know believers by their fruit. A good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. This is what the Apostle Paul points out in this first letter to the Corinthians. When someone is living a life that shows by their fruit that they don't truly have faith in Jesus Christ, you need to confront them first, but if that fails, you need to deal with it. As that's the case, the Apostle Paul declares in our passage, put away from yourselves the evil person. To do any less is to do wrong, Paul teaches us. To do less is to do wrong, and it puts the rest of the church in danger as well as the leaven spreads through the loaf. But their desire to change was good. We read in 2 Corinthians 7, the verses 9 to 10, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. We can see here once again that there was need for repentance on their part for refusing to use the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The church's failure to discipline this brother in Christ was a sin. Calling them out for their sin was, to Paul, an act of kindness for the people of God in Corinth. It was a sign of his care for the people of God that he would reach out and call them to repentance. He emphasizes this in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 7. Although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who had suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. And this is a point that needs to be made clear when it comes to the question of church discipline in general. Church discipline ought always to be a sign of love and care for the person who is wandering. When they have reached the point in which they refuse the gospel message, and they have reached the point in which they are living in open rebellion and sin, it's already proclaimed off the pulpit that if they do not repent and they do not believe, then they will not gain entry into the kingdom of heaven. Putting them inside or outside of the church by church discipline doesn't change that fact. And so it always ought to be a sign of love and care for that person who is wandering to place them under discipline because you are bringing to their attention the fact that they are in this dangerous, dangerous position. When it does happen, 
Church discipline does happen in a spirit of love. And for us, when our sin is made aware, when, when we are made aware of our sin, then it should be received by us in that way as well. As a recognition that it is people who are reaching out to us in love, who are concerned for the well-being of our soul. Because as we saw Paul pointing out, correction done from the right motives is a kindness. It's meant to draw back another person from sin against God, but more than that, to draw them back from condemnation. It's meant to bring them to repentance. We read in Proverbs 9, the verses 8 to 9, Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. And again in Psalm 141, verse 5, we read, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. Let him rebuke me, and it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. This is a call to recognize correction on both ends for what it truly is. We can see the psalmist here not only praying for correction where it is necessary, but he prays he would not harden his heart when it does come his way. It's a natural human inclination to want to put up our backs when someone confronts us. But God teaches that the one who truly does want wisdom asks God for the humility to submit to correction. Now we live in a world in which this kind of language is completely countercultural. It's unheard of. You need to accept everyone for who they are, regardless of what they're doing. If they're living in sin, that's okay. But that's not biblical at all. We are called to correct each other in love and to seek to receive it in love, to pray to God that he would cultivate a spirit within us that we would receive correction from those around us in love. Because we know that there are consequences to ignoring correction. Proverbs 13, verse 18, Poverty and shame will come to him who disdains correction, but he who regards a rebuke will be honored. And again, Proverbs 15, verse 5 says, A fool despises his father's instruction, but he who receives correction is prudent. Forgetting correction or taking it lightly can lead to very real danger. And we recognize this. Jesus himself had said that the way of life is narrow but broad, the path that leads to destruction. And the way of destruction is a comfortable path. It's one without needing to listen to confrontation, one that comes without appreciating being called to repentance. It's one that leads to an open grave. The path of life, however, is one in which we need each other. We need to talk to each other. We need to hold each other accountable in line with God's word, reminding each other to walk in faith and walk in light of God's love, to live lives of thankfulness. Now, as we saw before, the elders have a big responsibility when it comes to this. They have an enormous responsibility when it comes to this. They'll be held accountable 
for the way that they have done their tasks. And so the elders, above all, are called to regard this seriously. But it's not just limited to the elders. Again, as we saw in Psalm 141, verse 5, Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. There are more people who love Jesus Christ and who find their righteousness in Jesus Christ in this church than those who are sitting on the front bench here today, than those elders who are sitting among us here today. And so Jesus himself speaks about the responsibility of the church as a whole in Matthew 18, being on the front line and calling fellow believers to account before going to the church. We are called to be that person, each and every single one of us. Be that person who, out of love for them, calls them out. Beloved, listen to those who are around you today, especially when it comes to them encouraging you to walk along the path of faithfulness and don't be quick to brush it aside. It's true, beloved. Correction is painful. Giving it is deeply uncomfortable. Receiving guidance requires a lot of humility, especially when it's not given in a gentle way or when 90% of it is unwarranted. But strive to give and to receive correction as a kindness, especially where it's appropriate and biblical. Because this is God showing his love through his people showing his love to his people through you, calling his people back to faithfulness. This is him working through the Spirit and through the words of others in that process of sanctifying and perfecting you daily through his Spirit, changing you and challenging you more each and every day so that you can learn to live in response to this gift of grace that he's given you. And above all, brothers and sisters, as John Calvin famously put it, let love be your guide. Whether you're giving or receiving correction, let it be true love that moves out of concern for the spiritual well-being of your neighbor that motivates you. Let's seek to correct each other and to love each other with that same love with which Jesus Christ loved us, a love that's willing to lay down its life for those who are on the receiving end of it. Because that is what he did for us. Our Lord Jesus Christ loved us so much that he laid down his life for us. Amen.